Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrew Matišák, and I work as a deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Devi Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. A day that changed the world. This is how 9-11-2001 is often described, and it's true. The world looked in disbelief when planes piloted by the Al-Qaeda terrorists hit the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Almost 3,000 people died and subsequently it affected the fate of millions. Colin Krah is a New Yorker and he admits that the 20th anniversary of Al-Qaeda attacks is very emotional for him. But Dr. Krah is also a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center and director of policy and research at the Sufan Group, where his research focuses on domestic and transnational terrorism, international security and geopolitics. His most recent book is called After the Caliphate, the Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. That's why we discuss successes and failures of the war on terror, the role of Osama bin Laden, if 9-11 was preventable, or a scenario when Al-Qaeda attacks didn't happen. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. You are working for the Sufan Center, and in 2001, your boss, Mr. Ali Sufan, was an FBI agent, and maybe he would have the chance to stop the 9-11 attacks if the CIA would share all the info with him. How do you see this? Do you think that there was perhaps a slim but realistic chance to prevent Al-Qaeda's attacks? You know, it's an issue I've thought a lot about, and it's it's hard to look back and see missed opportunities. And I think people like Ali are unique in, in, in many ways, and that's unfortunate. If everybody had his same work ethic and commitment to the principles of defending this country, I think we would have been a lot safer. Unfortunately, When people go into the government, you like to think it's for public service, but there are all these natural human elements involved, right? Ego, greed, wanting the spotlight, wanting to be the one that solves the case. And I think, you know, if you go and and you study organizational psychology, what are all the the reasons why people do what they do? And I think, you know, there was clear stovepipes of information within the U.S. government. Uh, If you read The Looming Tower, that lays out pretty well that the CIA was withholding pretty critical information that maybe could have and, and likely could have prevented the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it's painful to relive a lot of this and, and, and see what could have been. Did American governments of Presidents Clinton and Bush, but also the other Western governments, underestimated Al-Qaeda? Clearly, without question. I mean, if you look at the nature of the 9-11 attacks, these were highly complex, sophisticated, well-planned, well-financed. Uh, for with individuals that were trained and determined, uh, and, and they were living in the West, you know, not only in the United States, but in, in Germany and elsewhere. And I think absolutely the West underestimated the threat posed by Al-Qaeda. And then I think subsequently overestimated the threat posed by terrorism, where we completely overreacted and treated terrorism as an existential threat because we were hit so hard on 9-11. Uh, in many ways, we played right into bin Laden's hands. 
Um, and, and he's kind of, you know, he, he was the one calling the shots, dictating our behavior, which is the exact opposite of what you'd like to do. I mean, I, re- I have a piece out in the, in the Los Angeles Times that talks about the, the importance of restraint, right? Uh, and not doing what the terrorists want us to do. I will come back to this overreaction and I look forward to reading your piece. But when we are talking about how we underestimated Al-Qaeda, what were the main reasons why we did it? I think at the time we just viewed terrorism as a nuisance. We didn't view it as a tier one threat. And it was a lack of imagination on our part that terrorists could use planes to, to destroy buildings. I think our experience before that, if you look at the 1993 World Trade Center attack, was, was quite different. Um, and, and we took that seriously, uh, but not seriously enough. Really, you know, up until 9-11, previous administrations just didn't place, you know, enough emphasis and resources on defending against the threat posed by, posed by Al-Qaeda. That's simple. You know, they viewed other uh, issues as far greater threats. I know that my next question will sound a bit strange, but please try to imagine a world without 9-11 attacks. What would be totally different now? And what would be probably the same? Would we still be fighting jihadi terrorists in some capacity? Yeah, in some capacity, but we wouldn't, you know, we, we potentially wouldn't have ISIS, right? I mean, ISIS is an outgrowth of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And um, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was a response to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which was done under false pretenses. So had, had 9-11 not happened, maybe jihadi terrorism would have continued to be treated as a nuisance and maybe a manageable one. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of what ifs if you look, look back. What, what if uh, one of the, the missile strikes against bin Laden actually hit him? Right? How, how critical was bin Laden to the success of al-Qaeda and to its staying power vice if Zawahiri had taken over at some point? Would we see the same result today? My gut instinct tells me no. I think bin Laden was, was very... Uh, it was a pivotal leader for, for not only Al-Qaeda, but the global jihadist movement writ large. And I think the U.S. has probably invested too much in tactics over strategy. I mean, we focused on decapitation strikes and taking out Al-Qaeda leaders. But if you look at the numbers, arguably, there are four times as many jihadists today as there were in 9-11. So there's a lot we're not doing right. I mean, that's apparent to me. What do you mean by this? One of the things that the United States needs to reinvest in is a long-term strategy, a plan that incorporates more than just military force, diplomacy, international development, education, all things that are long-term, costly, and not guaranteed to succeed. You said that Osama bin Laden was a pivotal leader for Al-Qaeda. Is it possible to identify what was his biggest strength and what was his biggest weakness in terms of how he was able to run his terrorist organization. I think maybe one of bin Laden's biggest strengths that everybody talks about was his charisma or his aesthetic. This was somebody that didn't have to live a life of, you know, austerity. Um, so in many ways, he talked the talk, but he walked the walk. And I think people admired that and people were drawn to him. Um, he was a very serious guy. Uh, when he talked about the ideological foundations of Al-Qaeda. People looked at him as the son of a construction magnate and, and a multimillionaire who didn't have to be living this life, but he did. Uh, so I think that was inspirational uh, for, you know, he became an icon for the global jihadist movement. In terms of weaknesses, you might argue that he was slow to adapt. And part of that's because he was isolated in Pakistan. And, you know, there was a lag effect with 
command and control. Um, but I think um, had Bin Laden been more willing to kind of step back and, and provide autonomy to Al-Qaeda affiliates, um, things might have, have turned out differently. Now, I'm glad they, they haven't. He was a micromanager in, in certain respects. And I think that might have you know, led to some friction. Uh, but, but it's hard. I mean, I, I look at Bin Laden the way I look at a CEO of a multinational corporation, right? And what happens with all these franchise groups and branches? Take Al-Qaeda in Iraq, for, for example. When Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was waging a sectarian war, essentially Bin Laden and, and Zawahiri wrote to him and said, hey, this is really destroying our brand. Um, you need to cut it out. And Zarqawi rebuked them, said, okay, I'll take it into consideration. Probably not. Right. And there was little they could do to control him. It's uh, a lot of challenges and a lot of, I think, opportunities that Al Qaeda seized upon. I, I think, including the, the opportunity provided by the Arab Spring, which many people thought would sink Al Qaeda once and for all, but actually they were quite adept in navigating that, that tumultuous period. Interestingly, perhaps Osama bin Laden, as a leader of Al Qaeda, was not that great in adaptation. But on the other hand, Al Qaeda as an organization, looks pretty adaptable. Look at the various franchises and organizations, and even when ISIS rose to prominence in the jihadi world, and we can talk a lot about the competition between those two organizations, but Al-Qaeda is still very much alive and kicking, and whatever we think about Mr. Zawahri, he is still somewhere around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wonder if he's if he's dead or alive, and if we don't see something on the 9-11 anniversary or in the lead up to it, that's probably a sign that something's quite wrong, that he's either dead or, or very ill, because I think many people would be expecting to hear from him during such a serious time. And then there's the question of succession. And, you know, my, my boss, uh, Ali Sufan has written about this. He's written about Saif al-Adil and, you know, the kind of next generation or next emir of Al-Qaeda. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting threads to pull on there. If, Saif al-Adil is still believed to be in Iran. What complications does that pose to Al-Qaeda uh, running a country or running an organization rather um, while you are you know, under quasi-house arrest and also looking over your shoulder so that you don't meet the same uh, fate as Abu Muhammad al-Masri, who is uh, believed to be killed by uh, Israeli commandos? Colin, I ask you about the possibility of what would be if 9-11 wouldn't happen. But of course it happened. It's tragically happened. From your perspective, how have Al-Qaeda's attacks changed the world? What are the consequences of the attacks that happened 20 years ago? Well, you know, we, we like to brag about we don't negotiate with terrorists, but in fact, we do negotiate with terrorists. Um, we do it frequently. It just sounds better to say that we don't. And we like to say that we don't give in and change our way of life, because if we did that, we'd be letting the terrorists win. But if you look at the way we fly and travel, And really go to go to New York City, go to Times Square. It looks totally different with ballards in place to prevent against vehicle attacks. So we changed the layout and we changed our kind of urban topography or geography in a sense. We're always adapting and, and becoming defensive to terrorists. We reshuffle entire governmental organizations, right? We created the Department of Homeland Security and um, the National Combating terrorism center nctc so we're always kind of in adapting in, in some way to terrorists and that's a good thing i think we can admit that you know we don't it's not admitting defeat to say that we take uh, corrective measures to to prevent the threat from a 
grand strategy perspective, you know, the U.S. in lieu of a grand strategy basically did counterterrorism for the last 20 years. It was the global war on terrorism, you know, was a substitute for any hard thinking. You know, we didn't have a strategy. We just played whack-a-mole chasing people all over the world. And I think that's put the U.S. at a significant disadvantage vis-a-vis China, Russia, and uh, state-based threats, because everything was non-state actors for the last 20 years. Now the pendulum swinging back in the other direction. Uh, there's major terrorism or counterterrorism fatigue here in the United States. People want to bookend the global war on terrorism. We're now out of Afghanistan, and all of the talk in the Beltway is of great power competition. You know, meeting the threat of a rising China, which I do think is the most significant threat facing U.S. national security and and global security. You know, I think China um, and its rise and whether or not it becomes antagonistic or um, cooperative will be the defining relationship over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So I do think Al-Qaeda attacks change the world. Look, it's taken two decades, 20 years to kind of reorient and repivot back to different priorities for the U.S. And if at any moment there's a major terrorist attack, we could see all that attention go right back to to where it's been. Uh, Terrorism has a deep, deep psychological impact uh, and, and it can have outsized effects on its intended targets. It works, in other words. Yes, I think this is a very good point about terrorism. Everything in terms of U.S. grand strategy is at this moment about the competition of the big powers, but uh, one attack similar to 9-11 or even smaller attack would affect the public thinking much more than anything what China is doing somewhere. And the pendulum would probably shift against towards counterterrorism efforts. I mean, just imagine an attack in Times Square with some kind of crude dirty bomb or WMD, you know, a, a chemical attack that even if it doesn't kill many people, the psychological impact is devastating, right? Or an attack with a drone or something that really captures people's attention. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's going to swing us right back to where we were. Yes, I think you are absolutely right. And by the way, may have a one, let's say, a bit personal question. Do you think that 9-11 somehow changed your life? <laughs> uh, yeah, 9-11 has changed my life in a, in a major way. I mean, I was a senior in college uh, when 9-11 happened. I was studying in, in Ireland, actually, for the semester at the University of Galway. Um, I was there to study the IRA and the Good Friday Agreement and the kind of aftermath of conflict. So I've always been interested in studying terrorism, um, but that day, I mean, I, there was no way I would be um, an academic. I, I wouldn't have gone for a PhD to study this. I essentially became obsessed with Al-Qaeda, Pakistan, Salafi jihadism, and had, had that day not happened, I, I think I would have had a career doing something quite different, you know, maybe law or finance or, I don't know, it would have been much, much more boring than what I've done for the last 20 years. I can, I can guarantee that. So I, in a sense, you know, I think I tell people my career chose me, um, you know, I'm a New Yorker. And uh, so this is a very kind of emotional anniversary. And uh, I never, I'm a lifelong civilian, never served in the military, but I'm from a military family, uh, mostly U.S. Marines. And this was kind of my way of thinking, you know, how can I contribute and, and pitch into what I think is a, you know, a national effort. And so that that's the way uh, I look at, I look at it. And um, I try to, find a silver lining. I mean, as tragic as that day was, 
it's given me meaning and purpose in my life. And I have to say, as depressing as some of the stuff we study can be, I do wake up every single day very interested in, in what I do. If I come back to Bin Laden, you suggested that we haven't been ready for 9-11 attacks, probably also because our imagination was not ready for a scenario when planes under the control of terrorists are hitting skyscrapers. At the end, 9-11 was a date of triumph for Osama Bin Laden. But was he realistically thinking that he can deal a mortal blow to America and to the West, or was he simply overconfident? If you look at his, what he said, it was essentially he thought that he could lure the United States into Afghanistan and bleed the U.S. dry, much like the, the Mujahideen did with the Soviets. And I think that was his plan, a war of attrition or you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. Uh, he, he saw the U.S. as uh, a paper tiger, you know, and he looked at incidents like Beirut in the 80s and Somalia in the early 1990s and thought if the U.S. gets hit hard enough, it will withdraw. That was essentially his mindset. And I think in many ways he was, he was accurate. I said I will ask you about how did we overreact to 9-11. In what areas do you see the biggest excesses of the war on terror? Yeah, there's been a lot of excesses. Money to start with, uh, how much money the United States has spent trillions and trillions of dollars. We have dedicated massive resources, personnel, energy, brain power to this fight against terrorism. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, it's not, it's, it's not all for nothing. We've prevented another 9-11 style attack, right? We haven't had one of those on U.S. soil, which was the goal, right, was to prevent this from ever happening again. Um, you know, there's been other fallout and kind of second order effects or consequences from the global war on terrorism itself, issues of privacy and security and things like that. Uh, and, and if you look at Afghanistan, I mean, it would be hard not to mention the fact that after 20 years, uh, trillions of dollars and, and thousands of lives, lo lives lost that we've managed to replace the Taliban with the Taliban. <laughs> so we're, we're back, are we back to square one? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think Al-Qaeda is greatly diminished and U.S. counterterrorism capabilities, particularly protecting the homeland, have been improved significantly. But there is a chance that Al-Qaeda could regrow uh, and there's a chance that Al-Qaeda could once again set its sights on the West. We're also now dealing with the Islamic State Khorasan uh, in Afghanistan. So, again, I mentioned terrorism or counterterrorism fatigue before. We might be done with jihadis, but I don't think they're done with us. And when we discuss overreaction, what about Iraq war and Guantanamo? These were big overreactions, weren't they? Look, Iraq was arguably the worst foreign policy disaster of my lifetime and, and, and you know, maybe beyond. And it's actually amazing to me that we see folks like, you know, Paul Wolfowitz and Paul Bremer kind of coming out of the woodwork to, to now comment on, uh, you know, Afghanistan. I mean, how these people have any credibility after the Iraq disasters just puzzling to me, uh, but it, it also shows you the way Washington works. You fail upwards, right? There's never any sanction for being an architect of, of disastrous foreign policy, and there should be. Of course, this is your job, but do the attacks still require study? Is there anything we still don't know about 9-11 in terms of how that happened and who was involved? Well, I still don't think we have the full picture on Saudi involvement, right? Mm -hmm. That's clear from portions that have been unreleased to the U.S. government. I don't know if we'll ever know the full Saudi role. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of Americans are upset about, that there hasn't been full transparency for our own government, from our own government. That, 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 that's a major one for me. 
Right, we pointed out that for 20 years attacks similar to 9-11 didn't happen on American soil. This is a clear success. But Islamic State was able to establish, albeit briefly, something that resembled a proto-state and Taliban is back in Afghanistan, so there was never a real plan to eradicate Taliban. The jihadi terrorism still exists, and on the other hand, the far-right terrorism clearly requires our attention. And of course, there are other security threats. Do we live in a safer world compared to September 10, 2001? In some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. I mean, look, the COVID-19 pandemic shows just how dangerous things that can, can be when we're unprepared for them. Uh, I used to teach a course on U.S. grand strategy at Carnegie Mellon University. And in the beginning of the semester, I would always have students rank threats with what they thought was the, the most dangerous. And I included global pandemics. I mean, this is going back probably seven years, and it always was ranked last. And it wasn't because students thought that a pandemic couldn't be dangerous. They knew that it could, but the assumption was that the U.S. was prepared to deal with it. And obviously we weren't. Uh, you know, there's a lot of technical issues for why the U.S. was overwhelmed. And there's a lot of political and cultural issues. I mean, President Trump essentially politicized things like mask wearing um, and now, you know, a certain uh, percentage of folks in this country wear on their sleeve as a badge of honor kind of a denial of science and, and vaccines. Um, so while the world moves on and threats continue to metastasize, here in the United States, we're fighting each other. And I think that partisanship is, is something that poses a significant damage to uh, the cultural fabric of this country. It's being eroded. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of different reasons why and technology and social media has been uh, particularly corrosive, I think, to, uh, to, to relations in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, we have a rising threat from domestic terrorism, as evidenced by January 6th. If I use your task for students, what is on top of your list of security threats? I, I think nuclear proliferation would be, would be up there. Um, I think, you know, potential conflict between nuclear countries like India and Pakistan and South Asia would be, would be at the top of my list. I think climate change would be up there because we see how pervasive the threat of climate change is. And that's another, you know, kind of threat that we're totally unprepared to deal with, right? We're, we're so obsessed with hard power and securitization that we think about we don't think in the same ways about these kind of non uh, hard you know non-kinetic threats like climate change but they can be just as if not more dangerous this was another episode of my podcast the global agora subscribe listen on spotify apple podcast google podcast and all the other platforms if you enjoy what i do please support me on coffee for the link See also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.